This is Shannon Evans of the Tom Bigby Tales podcast, and I'm here today with my friend Augusta Palmer, the filmmaker, and so many extraordinary other things. Uh, I want to welcome you today, and I can't wait to hear about your project that you just launched and all the accolades you've been getting. I'm just so excited for you. Thank you so much. Well, I'm I'm thrilled to be here to talk to you about this, Shannon. I love all the work that you're involved with doing with the Mount Zion Memorial Fund, um, which has been an important partner for my filmmaking project for quite a few years now, because this is a project that is uh, about a seven-year project that it took to complete. So, um, and the project's called The Blue Society. It's a, it's a documentary film about the Memphis Country Blues Festival, which took place in Memphis in the late 60s, starting in 66, uh, ending in 71. And it's about it's about how to look at that moment now. I think that's the primary thing that it's about. Sometimes I call it uh, a, a moving image mixtape because I was very conscious about the fact that I, I'm selecting this history. So. so what made you select that history? I mean, what was your what was your jumping off point or how did you get to that decision? Because that's I mean, that's a commitment. <laughs> that's a... it is. Um, well, I guess there are a few there are a few things that caused that. I mean, I think at the very beginning, when I was thinking about the project, both my parents were involved in the festival and my dad was one of the real core organizers. Robert Palmer was his name and he wrote a book called Deep Blues long after that. And in the way that people often do, because he was a music critic for the New York Times and Rolling Stone and had written this book, people said, oh, this music festival it was important because Robert Palmer was involved. And I knew from what little I knew from him, he's been dead since 1997. So long, uh, long uh, before I started this project, I knew that uh, that the festival was more important for him than he was for the festival. I, I think that would have been his point of view on it. So I knew from the beginning that I was going to uh, be challenging a little bit, maybe what people's first assumptions were. Um, and then I think in the 1980s, he had made me a mixtape that was called The Real 60s Man. That was the title on it. <laughs> you still have it? <laughs> I still have it. Oh. Um, and there was a kind of cautionary note on it that, that, that said that this is the 1980s 60s. It's not really the real 60s because uh -huh. the 1980s 60s. So I knew, you know, when I started making my film that I was at the beginning, making a 2016 60s film and by the end, making a 2023 60s film. So I think those are the the reasons why um, I wanted to be, wanted to have that, make that commitment to being selective. And then also the racial justice part of it, which I think is really important because that's the legacy I inherited as being the child of somebody who, who made not a tremendous amount of money, but made a name for himself as a white scholar of the blues. I wanted to think about what those power relationships were like in the sixties between black blues players and white organizers. Um, even if many of them had the best of intentions or great intentions, you know, the, the power divide was so extreme that they were in some cases really barely able to communicate, I think outside the language of music, which Music is great, but we have to function a lot of other ways in the world. So, who were some of the artists that um, were involved 
and and what do you I mean if there's any that you want to talk about their legacy or their impact sure um so artists that were involved and uh, many of them were men and they were all men in the case of this blues festival um that had made a name for themselves with recordings in the 20s and 30s and by the 60s when the festival happened they were kind of forgotten as popular recording artists um and then some of them had a little bit of a resurgence in their career after the festival and the blues revival writ large um because some of them played at newport the newport folk festival and things like that too so yeah, like like john hurt came out of the rediscovered he wasn't lost um he yeah. was just lost to newport uh it was rediscovered there so are, are there any yes. specific artists yeah, that so furry furry lewis uh was very closely associated with the the festival and um you know he made amazing music both in the 20s and 30s and in the 60s and 70s and was playing up until he died i think in the early 80s um and also did other things like uh, you know in the i believe it's the early 70s appear in a burt reynolds film um playing kind of a version of himself um it, but uh you know and but also did a great like television special that you can find on youtube now with leon russell um in addition to just doing so many great performances himself and playing out i think almost every week in memphis um after this rediscovery um like you you put it that he he started playing in the 60s at a memphis cafe called the bitter lemon and mm -hmm. the bitter lemon started by an artist named John McIntyre, I think also was a kind of kind of genesis for the blues festivals because the people who made them came together there. Um, other artists are really important. Um, Mississippi Fred McDowell, who's one of those people who also played at, at Newport. He was was a fixture at the the festivals. Um, uh, Booker T. Washington White, also sometimes known as Booker White, uh, was definitely from also- Are from uh, Aberdeen. Right, Aberdeen. Right, right by me. And that's how Bill Barth, who was one of the other organizers of the festival, got in touch with him because he had a uh, Booker had a had a song that was about Aberdeen blues. Mm -hmm. So nobody, nobody in the music world, the contemporary folk music world and blues music world knew where where he was. And so Bill Barth mm -hmm. just wrote a letter to to the Aberdeen post office. And it just happened, I think, that like. Somebody, somebody who, who knew him yeah a friend or a cousin maybe even of bookers well, and and took that to him yeah well you know in in these small communities if you got mail and nobody knew your like your rural route they would publish yeah. it in the paper and they'd say the following people have letters at the post office right so and that, i mean that continued into, yeah that continued into the 70s my yeah. mother was a journalist and so i mean i'm kind of schooled in the the newspaper world of these things and right. uh, Book of White, Aberdeen is right up the river for me. It is on the Tombigbee River. So it's in wow. the northern edge of the Black Belt Prairie, which was there were the Black Belt Prairie blues artists were. Um, Helen Wolf was from West Point area right. and Book of was from Aberdeen. And then we had Big Joe Williams from Lowndes County. And mm. then we had the Harrington brothers and 
it, 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 we had the Sandy Land revival in Noxabee County, which were all Black Belt Prairie blues artists, which were all along the Tom Bigby. So that, I mean, that's kind of a, an interesting, because our state is kind of, we have two very rural farmland areas. There was the Delta Delta, which is on, along the Mississippi. And then we have, uh, and around the, like, what, Vicksburg, Sunflower County, Carroll County, LaFleur County, although Carroll's not technically on the river, but it's still influenced by it. Mm -hmm. And then on this side, we have the Tom Bigby River. So it's kind of funny that these artists came up, both of them were on two different sides of the, of, of very yeah. significant rivers. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think obviously the Mississippi River is a big, big highway for blues, but those smaller rivers, since they were places where communities were built and things like that yeah. and sometimes connected to bigger rivers too. Uh, well, know. the thing about Tom Bigby is it went all the way down to Mobile. Right. And then of course the, the Mississippi went, Memphis was, was important. And then all the way down to New Orleans. Right. right. So the, the, the river commerce was kind of an, an important piece until the trains yeah. took over. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Um, another important, really important artist who has a really incredible legacy that was associated with the the Memphis Country Blues Festival is uh, Reverend Robert Wilkins, who, you know, these days, I guess a lot of people know him for writing the song Prodigal Son, which the Rolling Stones later recorded and initially credited to Jagger and Rith Richards and then had to make a correction of that. Um and uh, which, of course, should have been there from the beginning. But um, and so Reverend Robert Wilkins is a definite part of the film. And then I got to interview his son, Reverend John Wilkins, who played with him on the stage in the 60s and then got to play. Didn't get to play, I should say, again, until almost 50 years later at the Bandshell, where oh, he wow. was in Memphis, the Overton Park Bandshell, where he was the groundskeeper for decades um, wow. And then more recently still, when my film premiered at Indie Memphis after the show, um, there were two musical acts and one of them was the Wilkins sisters. So who are the daughters of Reverend John? So from yeah. Reverend Robert to Reverend John, who sadly died of, of COVID while I was making the film, to now his his daughters, that's quite a legacy. That's still... Mm. still so they're now into the third generation of blues artists. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of like Muddy Waters' family. They're now into the third generation with Tommy? No. He's a Johnston. Johnson. Yeah, I know that. Keith, is... Keith Johnson. That's what his name right. is. Keith, yeah. Yes. So, because we were talking to his grandfather this summer. Yeah, that, that right? was yeah, who is Muddy Waters' nephew. Yeah, yeah. Like, you you can't shake That's a stick in that. Mississippi without somebody being related to somebody. <laughs> so yeah. we, when was your first, I mean, did you go with your dad to any of these types of, of interviews and events or growing well, up? I didn't or... really get to know my dad until I was a teenager. Uh-huh. Um, and then I did go sometimes to see Blues Acts with him. But that was probably, no, that was definitely not until I was in my 20s when um he had made there there had been a documentary robert muggy had directed a documentary called deep blues kind of based on the book but mm -hmm. featuring a lot of north mississippi uh hill country bluesmen like rl burnside and junior kimbrough so by that time i 
and whose albums my dad also was a producer on. Um, so by that time, I got to know more about it. But um, but uh, in a way, in a way, I went to the 1969 Memphis Country Blues Festival. So sometimes I say I've been working on this film all my life because my mother was uh, pregnant with me when aw. she was tickets at the gate for people to come and actually ended up making a kind of impassioned speech when there were a lot of gate crashers. And she was asking people like, please pay your $1 because we give this to these blues musicians who oh, wow. have a lot of income. So, so. Your parents were cool. <laughs> yeah. That, that is yeah. so amazing. My mom's still cool. My dad is, I guess he's still cool out there somewhere. Um, in the yeah. Group. Somewhere in the, in the cosmos. <laughs> so what, what motivated you to, I mean, because making a film is a huge, not only a time commitment, an emotional commitment, a financial commitment. So what, what actually motivated you that went, hey, you know what, this would make a great film? Well, I really liked from early on the story of one aspect of the story that I haven't really spoken to yet, which is that it started out as very much this like hippie happening in 1966. Jim Dickinson, the musician and producer, had a $60 session check that he'd gotten for recording uh, something with Sun Records and um, and Bill Barth, who I mentioned before, and who was from the North, um, he from the New York area, he had a, a baseball size lump of hash. And together they decided that with those two resources, they could put on a blues festival. Um, so, <laughs> so the white musicians were kind of paid, paid in hash is my understanding. And the $60 went to reserving the band shell. Um, and that's uh, insane. It's, it's that pretty, is the best story. That is such a 60s story. Yeah. It's a very 60s story. Oh my God. Well, and you know, all the, I mean, it's, it's almost a stereotype. <laughs> right. But so I guess what I didn't say is it went from that, which is a stereotype to within only four years in 69, they had two film crews there. One from, um, this national show with Steve Allen that was brought, that's called Sounds of Summer that was broadcast um, by, uh, I think it was still being called CPB instead of PBS. Uh -huh. So a very, a very young baby public television broadcast that nationally. Um, and, that, and then they had another film crew um, from, run by Gene Rosenthal of Adelphi Records and that, you know, they were getting publicity in Billboard as well as in, you know, Rolling Stone and all kinds of sort of counterculture stuff. So they had kind of broken the 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 main culture, broken into that and we're getting some attention there. So um, did, well. the, did the blues artists actually benefit financially in the end in the, or get record well, deals or notoriety or? I think this is a little bit open to question. I mean, I definitely think because partially because there were multiple things going on, like Newport, which we talked about before, um, which certainly added to their um, their to the, the kind of reputation and, and the ability to book gigs for a lot of these musicians. Um, but the the Memphis Country Blues Festival was something that definitely people were paying attention to and was getting written about all over. So that also helped. Um, but, you know, not all those people who started managing them and booking them 
were necessarily sharing the money as well as they could have. Um, there's certainly a lot of a lot of stories about that. Uh, the festival, most of the people who were in the organizing core organizing group, like my dad and Nancy Jeffries, um, and Bill Barth, they spent half their year in New York and half their year in Memphis. And in New York, they were, um, a lot of them were performing at a place called the Electric Circus, which is kind of a legendary New York City nightclub. Um, and that there's actually a new documentary out about the Electric Circus. Um, and uh, and so they, they had some of the bluesmen come up and play at the Electric Circus and help them get other gigs. Mississippi Joe Calicott, um, came and played at the Museum of the City of New York. And at one point, that story used to be in the film, but it's not anymore, apparently met, met Mayor John Lindsay in the elevator and they weren't quite sure what to say to each other. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> but it is something that's kind of fun to imagine. Oh, that's funny. So, so I mean, this it must have been a... Um, it must have been a wild ride to to go back in history and look at all of this and to go through the music again and figure out how did you figure out what like you said some of it ended up on the cutting room floor how many let's let's look at, how many minutes did you have and then how what did you cut it down to i'm pretty sure i had over 100 uh hours that i cut down to 76 minutes oh my goodness yeah so do you, do you have a team? How does that work? Explain that to me. Um, I had multiple, I had multiple editors that I worked with over time. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of logging and, and uh, transcribing and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, you know, sometimes when you can't stand to go back and watch something again, you could go look at the transcript and then go, oh, <laughs> I have to go back and watch this again. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's certainly not the most efficient way to make a film and certainly um, better funded projects, I would say, probably are more likely to be a little bit more scripted and what they go looking for to interview people for. Um, but I, I, you know, for from the beginning, I sort of wanted to discover stuff that I didn't know yet. So if you take that approach, you end up with a lot of footage you don't use. That's, well, kind, of, that's kind of the nature yeah. of it. Well, I remember we had a lot of fun on the road together yeah. <laughs> this yeah. summer. So watching that work was was fascinating to me um, yeah. to watch how how out in situ, like, I mean, we're talking, we're in graveyards, we're at a dedication ceremony, we're, it's 100 degrees outside, there's snakes, there's God only knows what else. I mean, you can imagine, it, yeah. it, it, it was Mississippi in, what were it? Was it July? I think it was June. June, whatever. So. It was hot. It was hot enough. Yeah. 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 And, you know, we're wandering around all over the Delta. So that was fascinating to me to see how, in a in a documentary, I mean, it's totally different than a scripted piece of fiction or something like that. So to me, that was that was very organic way. And I, I, I mean, I enjoyed it, but, um, it was, it was fascinating to me to, to experience. And it's totally different than what I do. So podcasting is different. Um, doing research and writing for the Mount Zion Memorial Fund is totally different. So all of this is, um, it, it's fascinating for me to see 
the blues experience and the history through your eyes and through your father's eyes. So this was fascinating to me to, to experience. Um, of all the things that you saw, you recorded, people you met, what was the most surprising piece or what was, what was the most gratifying, like, oh my God, I didn't think that would happen moment? Hmm. Well, I definitely think, and that was pretty early on, like 2017, like seeing John Wilkins take the stage at the Bandshell, which, you know, I think there were a lot of factors that came into that. But the the year before, I had been part of a group of people who showed bits of that Steve Allen show at the Bandshell as the 50th anniversary of the 1966 first festival. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I was really saying like, you guys should revive this festival. And they were interested at what was in the Levitt shell. Now is back to being the Overton Park shell um, in kind of reviving the blues festival. And I met some great guys, Rick and Stephen Whitney, who are Memphis natives. Rick is now in LA. Stephen is still in Memphis, black Memphis natives wanting to like, make a new version of the festival. And so they did that and, and Reverend John was the headliner. So I can't like take credit for that, but I feel like I was, I was a step in the. Yeah. The but you watched it unfold. Along. That's, I mean, that and was I, history. Was there to watch that happen and, and talk to him before, right before he went on stage and things like so that. Is so is the that, festival still going in its new form? It is still going, you know, I mean, I think it's, uh, of course, it's not going to be the same. And I don't think anybody's intention was is for it to be the same. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, but yeah, it's still it's still it's still going. There was a bit of a hiatus during COVID because um, it started, you know, not too long before COVID in 2017. But but yeah, it's it's still going. And then the other thing that was very. In the end, gratifying and in the beginning, surprising and upsetting to me was actually the part of the story that Mount Zion uh, came in on, which is that there was a player at the Memphis Country Blues Festivals named Nathan Beauregard. And um, and he was kind of, as you mentioned about John Hurt, he was discovered or <laughs> um, <laughs> by these Colombian terms are not, yeah. are not really good because he had been uh, doing his thing his whole life and did yeah, really like John no, nobody he hadn't stopped playing music he just yeah, yeah exactly so Nathan had been playing music his whole life he hadn't been recorded in the 20s and 30s like a lot of other people um, but uh, Bill Barth found him playing when he was going around Barth was canvassing for records trying to get old collect old records um and uh and barth just it seems like decided uh from the repertoire nathan was playing and and the fact that nathan looked very old to him as a 20 something guy um i can remember being 20 something too i thought everyone was old uh <laughs> i'm sure i would have looked at my current <laughs> self and said antediluvian oh my god yeah um, anyway uh so there is that side of it but and he barth was also you know a little bit of a, a huckster he got people to come to these festivals so but he i think the reasons are still and the thinking was a little bit obscure but barth decided that nathan was over 100 years old yeah. And he did not ask Nathan, as no. far as we can tell. Nor did he bother and, to look like at any records. 
<laughs> well, I think the records, I mean, Dwayne says, actually, I think he may even say this in the film because he does talk about Nathan for a minute in the film, you know, that those records are much more available to us now than they were in the 60s. They would have been very, it would have been very difficult to to get his World War One draft card, right. which we 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 now have. Any anyway, so I and I think also just implicitly, Nathan could not say, I'm actually not a hundred because he was being marketed as the world's oldest living blues man, and he was making a little tiny bit of money for maybe the first time in his life as a as a blind man from Mississippi playing music. Mm -hmm. Um so you know there's a I heard an interview where he was asked how old he was and he just really like avoided that question. <laughs> <laughs> well you know um, it's part of the uh, so but the thing that was very upsetting to me was not only that there wasn't this possibility for Nathan to say, Hey, I'm great, but I'm not a hundred. Uh -huh. But when he died in 1971, he was buried at an unmarked grave. Mm -hmm. um, even though he had been really one of the stars of this, this series of this annual series of festivals and people really loved his music and really admired him all over the South and then all over the world, because in 1968, a record was made um, by blue horizon and sire records that that people all over the world bought and so the idea that that this guy was made famous but then nobody could even put together the money to put a headstone up for him yeah um, it, that's is, despicable i mean that's we found that with the mount zion memorial fund over and over and you know and i'm sure there are plenty of good explanations that people didn't get informed or you know, all those kinds of things. But so it was very gratifying to me when with Mount Zion, I was there to de to dedicate a monument. To well, you him. know, and a lot of times they had, uh, many of them had wood, homemade wood uh, or concrete. Somebody had etched it, poured right. it, and it'll crumble over time because it's not marble and it's not permanent. And then the, you know, the community, the diasporic relative movement of people in mississippi to to more opportunity elsewhere especially in the 70s and 80s a lot of these a lot yeah. of these burial sites there's no one to maintain them anymore and so they get lost to history and they're privately owned so the cities don't necessarily they don't take them over and 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 the people buried there get lost to history and so i mean that's been part of why we do what we do is and we've also found that once we figure out there's a blues artist buried there we can pair that with a community and then the community is interested in preserving that history because it becomes a point of tourism right so i mean that's kind of been a win-win thing in some ways well and so much more history gets preserved because there's so many other markers of so many other people in those graveyards that don't happen to have been blues yep, again. exactly so, um and in some cases i know you know graveyards that you guys worked on are just weren't accessible there wasn't you know ways to get to them so even if you know, nathan beauregard didn't have any children as far as we know um but even people who have children, if they couldn't access the cemetery, they, they couldn't keep things up, even if they had the means, financial means. Yeah. 
entirely there's a different. lot of encroachment. I mean, that's what we're finding with the John Hurt, um, the the uh, St. James Missionary Baptist uh, graveyard, and we took you guys up there. The yeah. church is no longer there. The county allowed somebody else to take over half the graveyard, and all we have is the other half, and we're fighting like the Dickens to preserve that. And they protested. We had a dedication ceremony to that, uh, you know, the big the monument we put up there. We finally had the actual John Hurt Festival and and dedication. And the people that have the other side of the road, they were pretty ugly and said some very derogatory and very racist things. And there was a strong of people. So now there were Italian uh, newscasters. That, I mean, it was, uh, it was a French there were people from France there who were writing about the about the event, and boy, they got an eyeful. <laughs> I was like, well, well, most of Mississippi's not like that anymore. But you know, when it comes to land, and yeah, you know, people decide what they want is their sacred space, and there's you know, this encroachment is a real issue. It's a and you know, it, it's, it's really, it's an emotional thing for both family, you know, both sides, like the people who got the new land and making it their family cemetery. And then there's the people who've been burying their family there for over a century. It's a, yeah. uh, I don't know where to find the middle ground. It would be nice if we could, but I don't know that that's going to happen. So the other thing that is very interesting to me is um, in, in what you have done is you've, you've already started getting noticed for this. Your your film has gotten some accolades. So so tell yeah. me a little bit about that. Well, um, you know, we got a very nice piece written about the film in Rolling Stone magazine um, early in the fall in September uh, by Dave, by a guy named David Brown, who's a great writer for Rolling Stone. Uh, so that was really, it's very, very rare before a festival premiere that you get a, an article uh, in, in Rolling Stone. So I felt very, uh, 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 just a lot of gratitude for that happening. Wow. And um, we premiered at Indie Memphis and had like a, you know, really really full theater and we won the audience award at indie memphis in our category which was sounds which is like music films uh -huh. so that was that was really wonderful and that's uh, huge yeah and at the end of january i'll be uh i'll be showing the film on january 26th at the new jersey film festival and on january 27th at the clarksdale film and music festival i'm going to both so it's going to be oh how are you going to do that <laughs> <laughs> run really fast uh, I think I'm gonna have to fly <laughs> ah, oh my goodness yeah I may yeah. be down there for the Clarksdale one I'm trying to to get to that I'm, I'm really excited for you so where can my audience find your film and and uh well we ha are just finalizing a deal for distribution on you know sort of pay-per-view platforms, SVOD, they call it, um, you know, so that that's like your Amazon, iTunes, those kinds of things where you pay a little bit to watch something. So I don't have, I don't have a release date yet, but it's going to be this year and, um, you know, in, in a few months. So right now, uh, of course, the New Jersey Film Festival definitely has uh, an online part. So you could buy a ticket and watch it 
in your living room. Um, those tickets are on sale now. And um, I, yeah, I don't think that Clarksdale has that option. Do you know where they can, can you send me the link yeah, for, absolutely. for the New Jersey and I can put it, I can put it in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. That would be awesome because we can yeah. hopefully sh sell some more tickets because I yeah, really want exactly. word to get out. I, I'm super excited. I'm so proud of all you've done. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm just, you, you, this is, I mean, I've watched over the last two years, just what you've done and trying to to tie up all the loose ends and get this. I mean, you were so close at the finish line. It's so close. And and I could see that how hungry you were to get this done. So I'm, I'm, I'm just honored to uh, have been able to watch part of this unfold. And I think it's just really amazing work you've done. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. And I enjoyed our trip uh, last summer. And we had fun. Yeah, we had fun. We, had we fun. sweated a lot and got dusty, we but we had a good time. <laughs> <laughs> so what um what's next for you? Um, well, you know, hopefully going to a few more festivals. I'm waiting to hear on some. Um and uh and getting ready for that that online release and hopefully do a little a very limited theatrical, I think we're hoping to do um, early in the summer. Uh, and then I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking for a new project. Um, I have, I have a few things in mind. One, one thing is that, uh, there is some footage that's in my film now that is, was made by a, an experimental filmmaker in Memphis named Carl Orr. Um, and, uh, he just made these crazy experimental films with all kinds of, I, how do you even describe them? You know, in the in the Blue Society, for example, you see someone being getting into a VW bug and driving away and being chased by a woman with an umbrella. <laughs> or like there's a part where we were talking about uh, someone staying at a flop house and it just happened that we had like footage of like a, a whole bunch of these artists who are stars of these films, like flopping down on a mattress. <laughs> oh, funny. <laughs> Not quite the definition of a flop house, but. <laughs> no, no. It's a different I like kind that of though. I like that. Yes, yes. So um, I would love to do something with the director and stars of that film to make something just about that that crazy bohemian uh, moment in Memphis history. So that that's something that I would love to develop. And and then I'm also working on a I'm developing a multi part documentary that is going to be about the the history, science, and culture of color. So like where does the color blue germane to blues like where does it come from what are the minerals in it how do we see it and what does it mean culturally in different cultural spaces and oh, doing wow. for the spectrum of colors haven't decided quite how many colors will be you know primary colors secondary colors we'll see yeah it'll, um, it'll all come I'm, to you but it'll i'm very fail itself <laughs> well, but i'm very i've always you know i, I love it might be in an umbrella chasing you in a VW too. Exactly. It may be. It may be. <laughs> I do feel like the Blue Society as a film kind of did that. Sometimes I was like, it's the zombie film. It just won't let leave me alone. That's <laughs> but, funny. But it was in a gentle way, like that umbrella <laughs> driving down. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's hilarious. I love it. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the Tom Bigby Tales. And uh, 
I can't wait to see what when this uh, project is completely out there in the public for all of us to see. I hope it gets distribution quickly. And uh, I can't wait to see what comes of it. And I hope you're, you know, I hope you get into more and more film festivals. Have you tried Park City yet? That's one of my favorite film festivals. No, I haven't tried there yet. I ought to try. That one's a good, that one might be a good one. I think it might be a very receptive audience. They do a lot of, of music. I, I actually went to see, um, not Bo Diddley. Oh, shoot. I've lost the name now. I went to see um, a couple of blues artists in Park City in the 90s, hmm. which was just kind of just strange. We were, it was during Park City Film Festival and they were the entertainment and I don't even remember why or what was the connection, but I would, you know, I'm, I'm in Utah at the time working and at the university and I'm like going, <laughs> why not? Let's go why get not? the Mississippi connection. And it was, you know, it was great fun, but, um, but I know that Park City is, has been receptive to, to the blues. So okay. might be worth well, a try. Yeah. Yeah. Be yeah. try. Yeah, well, thank you it? again. And um, let's connect up again real soon okay. and keep us posted. And if you'll give me the, the link to the New Jersey festival, I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. Okay. All right. All well, right. thank Thanks you so much. much. Take care.